Back to a Better World. This is your host, Mitchell J. Raven, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Today, we're going to be speaking about a subject whose themes are always echoing through the halls of a better world radio and television and all of our work here at A Better World Media and Foundation. It's so important and it's so good to have a a colleague and brother in arms, so to speak, who is so envisioning a world that works for everyone and recognizing at the same time that it all begins with first dealing with our inner lives. And that is really the road to change in the outer world. Most people, of course, are living just looking at the externals. Maybe that's one of our main problems. And not looking at the mechanisms internally that actually generate what we have on the outside. It's an old metaphysical and physical principle at this point. And uh, Richard Bowell, who is our guest today, has really uh, dealt with this, looked at it as an author, as a philosopher, as a thinker, someone who really cares about our world and about our species, and has written a book interestingly called The Last Unpolluted Place on Earth is Inside Ourselves. I love the title, and uh, he is here from Greece. He's been uh, a guest of Michael Shuchuk at the UN, who is a legal officer there, who has introduced him around and has helped to set up a nonprofit 501c3 to help support this work of global evolutionary change. And that will be the subject of today's show. Richard's work has been endorsed by scientists and spiritual leaders, leading authors and evolutionary thinkers worldwide. In 2014, he was first invited to live in the United States and granted a visa to help uh, promote his work, considered as, quote, a person of exceptional talent with an important contribution to make to American society. And and uh, that shouldn't be the end of the quote at all. It should be continued and supported. And that's why I asked to have uh, Richard as a guest on today to talk about his work and what he's seeking to bring to the United States of America and how we can benefit from it. So with that said, uh, we will have both Richard and Michael on today uh, with Richard speaking first, if you would. Richard, welcome to A Better World. Thank you very much, Mitchell, and thank you for having me on the show. It's really a pleasure. Uh, I'd love to hear you speak about what it was that motivated you to write this in the first place, and then let's get into some of its brass tacks of what it is you are um, purporting here. Well, when you ask what caused me to write it, it's, um, uh, yeah, uh, I, I think that goes to the heart of a, a very special question, which is that, you know, why why did I get on this path in the first place? How, how did this yes. begin? And um, uh, I, I got asked that by a, a, another of our colleagues who had been on this show, I believe, Kurt Johnson, the other day. Mm-hmm. And... I describe something, and maybe I'll describe it in terms of a story, because I think that says it better than any kind of intellectual critique on it, is that when I was uh, about 16 and living in London and on my way to school, I arrived at the bus stop and the bus pulled up. And I looked in the bus, And it's very difficult to say why this happened, but I knew that if I got on that bus, I was going down a path of repetition and habit that I might never escape from. So I didn't get on the bus. I went home. I went to my money box, took out everything I had. I'm 16. I went to Heathrow Airport. And I said, where can I get to? with this money at the counter in Heathrow Airport. They said, you can get to New York and have five pounds left. I said, okay. And later that night, I was in New York, having been on my way to school. 
at nine o'clock in the morning. Oh my! Now <laughs> that is part of why I wrote the book. It's so many things along that line, Mitchell. But I'm sure you understand that I put my feet upon a narrative of living at that moment that I've not that that I've consciously taken up ever since that moment, which is that I knew that as long as I repeated the lives of others, as long as I took uh, the path of formula and the known, I would never really actualize what it meant to be human. So when I write the last unpolluted place on earth is inside ourselves, it's because that's what I found. Not It's not just a title, that's the place of no name that I found in myself after, oh, maybe 30, 40 years along this pathway. And that is mm-hmm. the, the, the sharing that I have for the world. In some sense, we can say, as you and I do together, that we are doing the same thing. But I think that we have unique functions in it. And I think that's the bit that I have or that I've adhered to. Yes, you're bringing your own personal. Uh, it's almost as though you've become a travel agent for youth since then, helping them uh, on their own non-habituated journey. But in your case, actually, not just youth, but uh, but everyone. <laughs> yeah, I'm just turning that phrase over in my mind. That's quite a uh, a succinct way of putting a travel agent. Yes, I think that's very. <laughs> True. Listen, I officially steal that from this point. Um, Yes, Yes. I think that's a very, very good way of saying it. Yes, yes, yes. When I meet meet people, I'm acutely aware that uh, while they struggle with issues, as you rightly said at the beginning, in the world around them, that the real challenge is often that they're not on the right path inside themselves. They're not aware or conscious that there is another way of being because so many times they've overridden some very, very core intuitive or inner signals, some very small micro signals, but if you pick up on them, they become a major contributor to the path that you take. Um, Absolutely. It reminds me, Richard, of the uh, long-spoken phrase of listen to the small voice within. You know, that whole idea of being inwardly quiet enough to listen to that voice and actually hear the murmuring of the heart is another uh, kind of common indigenous way of, in traditionally spiritual way, if you will, uh, that really underlies all wisdom traditions. That idea that we really have solutions and answers and understandings that I think is largely born out of a sense of um, the heart and compassion. And uh, we do, as you say, override this all the time, and our lives are so externalized we have given really, really short shrift to our inner lives. I, I hear you making that case very well in your writing, and uh, when I heard you speak last year at the UN, you made that really resoundingly clear, and I really appreciated it. Yeah, yeah. So well, how are you bringing this, because I know you are, you're, sense of purpose in leaving uh, Greece, such a beautiful place on the planet, to come to a uh, uh, more sandpapery but wonderful place like New York, uh, is because you want to bring this kind of thinking into institutions. And I know through Michael and others, you were uh, helping to do that initially at the U.N., you know, it, where we live in Greece, we have some very typical Mediterranean gardens. 
leading, you know, looking out over the Aegean Sea, very classically beautiful. And and when um, we want to plant a tree in the garden, uh, I would carry the tree around the garden and somehow try to at least ask myself the question, not where do I want the tree? Ah, that will block that view, that will give a nice view from that window, but where does the tree feel comfortable? Now, that might sound a bit fanciful, or it might not, but it's a kind of thinking about oneself, which is that uh, I've lived in loads of countries, but I've carried myself around in that manner, which is that when I arrive somewhere and there's enough signs and signals that this is the right place, then I'll plant myself there. I've been in New York on this trip only five days, and I'm just meeting one person after another, including reconnecting with you. And the, yeah. sense, I, the sense I have is that something is trying to congregate powerfully in America, I was, was going to say, in spite of, but almost because of the circumstance around it, that there has been so much of a lower brain thinking of enforcing upon the world yes. that something is responding inside people that says, we have to congregate in a new space, in a fresh, unpolluted place inside ourselves. Yes. So I wouldn't say that I choose to be in America. I'm not... You know, you won't find me on Fifth Avenue going shopping after this <laughs> talk. I, that doesn't interest me. But, but the meetings, being at the UN, meeting Michael was the very first part of that, which was a very extraordinary meeting, um, is that I sensed, yes, it's saying that this is where I need to plant my life at this moment in time. Yes, I understand. Beautifully put. And... Let's talk about some of the um, the basics of the inner kind of transformation, Richard, that you speak about in the book and in your work. What is it that yeah. you would like to see internally occur in we humans as a means of also coming to a greater sense of our own inner truth and peace, and how that can then be reflected in a sustainable outer world. With okay. peace, with the, with the earth, of course, with Gaia, with Pachamama. Yeah. yeah. Um, if I could ask all of us to just sort of imagine three concentric circles, and... Um, you know, all I've ever done, all I've ever tried to do is see what is. Not to develop my theory, but just to see what is. One thing we can all see is the outer level of reaction. And this is something I brought up at the UN when I first began to train staff there, was that even in the recently declared sustainable development goals they're written as a reaction against something wrong we must overcome this we must erase this we must ensure that there is no more poverty there's no more this there there has to be uh, uh, there's no more hunger and and the way it's framed um, is reactive to something wrong Very and this is what what we normally call change. Someone gets on a set of scales, they say, oh my God, I've got to change my lifestyle, my, the way I eat, you know, the, or, or whatever it is, or so, uh, a leader hears from their staff at some open and so-called frank session that they're too dominant. Right, I'd better be a bit more listening. And this is an, a duality system, and I could see that. But I was also aware that there was another, at least one more ring inside there, which is that if I didn't react to things wrong, as an example, when I walk along the streets of New York, there are many things 
that pull at my heart, like a, a man lying there with not a penny. Uh, you know, so many things. Um, then I can see that there's a place beyond that reaction where I need to consider how to think about living on this planet. It being that it's not just a sum of reactions against what's wrong. It's a deliberate um, challenge to find what is the way to live, what is the way to be. In um, other words, if I may say, Richard, to to assert uh, what we call these days a proactive, which is always redundant, but it seems to resound, a proactive stance, a declaration on the positive side of the ledger, if you will, of who I am, what I am, and what I'm doing. Yeah, I mean, uh, that word proactive fits in that middle circle, you're right, um, to, to, to weigh the balance wisely and to add weight to what one has come to as value. But there's mm -hmm. still another place, and this is this third place that I began to, I'd been aware of right back into that story I told you about, yes. the getting on the bus, I've been aware yes. that there's a third place, and so you could say reactive on the outside, proactive, now we might need another term, and maybe you can help me with uh, with the English or American of this, is it, maybe it's coactive or, or synth something yes. where... So we frankly say, well, I, I see where you're going, we typically say co-creative. Yes, okay, okay. I can live with that for, for, as a but kind of holding. as you wish. <laughs> and um, you see, we are now living in an age where just being proactive is not enough. Um you know, and this I certainly was faced with at the United Nations, that um, this term, not sustainable, um, it sets sustainability as a high point. And in this work, I'm really mm -hmm. saying that sustainability is a very low benchmark for living. We're actually here yes. to generate and create new in every way, new feelings, new thinkings, new patterns. And I'll give a little example from yesterday, just because I think the stories in the time that we have here maybe say it best. But I'm staying in the hotel in Midtown Manhattan, and I get on the elevator, and elevators are almost the small ecologies in themselves. You know, you you yes. you tend to you know you you That's see someone maybe odd you turn towards the buttons and you're sort of counting down the floors. And there was a man there. In the and um, I looked at him and he was well-dressed. But there was a certain kind of dignity about him that caught me. And I could feel that something was registered both ways. So when, we, when the doors were about to open, and I'd looked at him longer than one normally does in New York, just looked at him openly in the eye, Yes. With no threat, of course, just openly. And he's, he said, after you. And I said, you're a real gentleman. And he said, as are you. And then he put his hand on my back as if to ah. make a connection. And in that moment, I could feel, in that just that one little moment, I could feel the way there is the potential of a co-creative web of humans who are no longer a threat to each other in the middle of a crazy <laughs> looking at Madison Garden Hotel in New York there in that moment there was a new hope uh, it couldn't have happened in a calculation it was not proactive it was just an acknowledgement of this fact and if you'll just give me one moment to say this we humans are a design that doesn't merit the term human until we affirm the full potential and proposition of who and what we are. Everything about life is a beginning. 
our senses are a beginning, but we take it as an ending. We take it as it's ours. It's not. It's the beginning of life in the universe that occurs on this planet. And so the establishment of that network, whether it's through that moment of courtesy and recognition, and of course the study of all of these ways is the work of human evolutionary change, the actual taking up of that way of being is the establishment of a new world inside a space that is unpolluted, which is the core of human life, which is to do with what we have yet to become. And it's talking about a unique kind of choice, which is that we choose to become human. It's a very special feeling that one becomes free of all the other choices. All the other choices that life hound us with begin to drop away when you see that in our evolution we are at a point where unless we affirm to become a human we will as a species die we become extinct yes yes well, very beautifully put and uh i i'd like to just comb over a few of the comments you made if you would mind to uh, help elucidate them in another form so to speak mm. uh one is just most recently that beautiful interaction between you and a so-called stranger, yet, even though you didn't know and didn't learn his name, you had this intimate, I would call spontaneously emergent moment of great humanity. I would call that humanity, that nonverbal, you know, energetic exchange that occurred with just what were a few glances, not much, and then a gesture, almost completely nonverbal, and you felt each other's presence in this way that ultimately inspired hope in both of you. Even though those weren't the words used at all, you know, because you felt it inside yourself, Richard, how he too felt when you both left that elevator. It, you were different men, if you will. Mm. And I, I I, think that that is utterly beautiful. It's not by uh, calculation, as you say. No, it's spontaneously emergent. And I would like to go back and please comment on all of this or any of it uh, to your comment on the use of the word sustainability in the context of the UN-based sustainability development goals. Very interesting. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Since when did the word sustainable, meaning able to survive like into the next day, become so exalted, extolled, and laudable? It's like, wow, I thought we had this part down. Well, in fact, as a society, we don't have it down at all. We're we're, you know, creeping toward a future because of the destruction we've created. And sustainable uh, has now become elevated because we've done so much damage. I mean, that's one way of looking at it. But what I hear you saying by implication is our goal should be way higher than what that word implies. And I, I agree with you wholeheartedly, and I, I love that idea of reframing things for a much higher output and relationship we humans can have with each other and with our planet. So those are just a few comments as I'm listening to you speak. And in the way of... Uh, thank you so much, the way you um, compliment, not me, but the process. Um, yes. You know, um, you see, one of the... Um, Sustainable Development Goals talks about, uh, is it overcoming poverty? I'm just checking with my my friend Michael here. Overcoming poverty. And see, the, the way we think is that, right, there are people who are poor. Let's make a measurement of what it means to be poor. Let's see yeah. what they need to no longer be poor. Let's take measurements over the period from now to 2030 when these goals are meant to be realized. But yes. 
what a poor thing it would be to enter not just an elevator, but enter into this world and not have moments that I described just with that man as an example. That, yes. And you see, we're, we're, we're talking about a poverty as only one very small part of the poverty situation. You know, seeing people in America, and not particular to America, but who have everything and nothing, have everything and nothing, um, and you know that that until we actually affirm the richness of the human opportunity, we are as poor. I know it's a more pressing poverty in others, but when you're in touch with your humanity, you would never allow such poverty to exist in the world, and that's where it began. Absolutely, it began because we disengaged from our human core. And oh, yes. So, all right, we can now set goals for no more poverty and, you know, getting a certain amount of food here and there and transport, all of which, of course, is largely polluting the planet and creating other problems. Or we can begin in finding the richness of what is the richness of the human opportunity. And inside that, one begins to create opportunity and to create new life, to create new feelings, and um, and to do things for purpose, to do things consciously for a while, to do something for one conscious act is worth a thousand unconscious reactions. I really believe mm. it's that equation. Beautifully put, beautifully put. I want to say about this overcoming poverty, just as sustainability is a step up from full extinction. It's yeah. sort of like the next rung in the ladder, and we can yeah. do much better, I do believe, as you do, and yeah. our friends and colleagues. Uh, overcoming poverty is a step up from the war on poverty. For yes. most of the last 50 years, we've been waging war everywhere on other people, nations, but also on things like drugs and poverty. And it's still a war mentality. And, you know, it's just war uh, applied to other other areas. It's really rather pathetic. But uh, and, you're and, and, making a... I might yeah, say, um, Mitchell, that, that even creating war on poverty is you can't create war on one thing without telling your systems that war is all right. You, you can't... The first person yeah. to listen... To, to listen to what we do and say is ourselves and therefore it's an unfortunate language and it sets precedence for further kinds of problems challenges yes. down the line um, and, and again, if I could if I could give another little is it alright give one more little story on this oh please please yeah. well where we are on the Greek islands my wife and I um, which Greek island people, uh well, now everyone's going to come and knock on my door and say, Richard, I want to... <laughs> um, Syros, oh, it's a okay. little island. <laughs> I might in a, come. In a very unknown part of this five-square-kilometer island. Syros, okay. I'm joking. Okay. Um, yes. But the people, as you know, are very poor, and one of the first things that's happened is that they've abandoned the their pets, the animals, and particularly oh. the cats. And yes. we uh, had a couple of cats come into the garden and we looked after them and then they went and told their friends and their friends said listen this is a really good place these naive English Danish people they're giving food to all of them anyway we now have <laughs> 55 cats oh and my. of course we take them all to the vets and we've got to know the vets and one day this vet said to me Richard why do you and your wife Joan look after all these cats, it costs so much money. And, and they were looking for an answer about the cats. And I said, because it keeps us human. Yeah. It, it, it keeps us human to, to not discard what's in our vicinity. And therefore, it, the balances of that unpolluted place are different. We're not looking for someone to say, well done, or you're doing such a good job. We're not looking for that. In fact, it even sounds odd. We say, thankfully, here is an opportunity 
to renew our humanity. Mm. And as we know that you can say this to people, but if only people really experienced the richness of the service life of human life, they would realize how little they need. And only when they realize how little they need will they start stop hungering after things that will never feed the core of who they are. Um, so you've got children coming into the world almost being mm, coerced into a pattern of needing more and more. Uh, and there is no, that, that experiment has really proven to have brought us to the edge of what they call the sixth extinction. You've really brought me, Richard, to a place that I feel like I really want to redefine this idea of poverty. I think it's really important. And uh, so you've just kind of uh, set me up for this in your, in your speaking about Greece, the cats, the Greek people who have abandoned their uh, pets on your mm-hmm. island. And uh, I understand and I've been to Greece several times, and I've actually seen the cats roaming in the streets. It's actually quite amazing. Uh, yeah. But, you know, I have to say that in Greece, as well as in other developing countries, we call them very strange, but uh, let's leave it at that for the moment, uh, yeah. India, where the people who are most what we would call materially poor or without, were also among the most generous I've ever experienced. And, and I, I have absolutely, right? absolutely I know agree. we're on the same page. And absolutely. I have been awed. I have been humbled to the point of tears at yes. people insisting on making dinner or sharing a meal when I saw I was in their own homes which were, you know, basically little huts and insisting on giving what little they had forth. And so I consider that, and I have a feeling we're in agreement, uh, in alignment, uh, that that is spiritually wealthy, but materially poor. And I see the opposite in so many of our wealthy people in our country, materially wealthy, but spiritually impoverished. I think these Mm. distinctions help to really turn a corner on what it is we mean when we use these words. Your comments? Mm. Mm. Well, I've really wrestled with this question of money, and because I I have no wish to charge for anything that I do. It it is anathema to the process to say you owe me for this because all I am doing is being human. And I think part of the experiment of this work is that it, uh, you know, it, as Mike, as you said in the introduction, I have a O1 visa to move to America. Um, yes. And little, very very little by little, people are coming forward and supporting that financially um, because they're getting free of the idea that I'm selling a commodity. I don't want to put this in a course. I don't want to say it costs this and then the super version is this. I'm actually just a champion of what it means to be human. And everything, everything that surrounds that is important. You know, people divide it. They say, oh, I want to be compassionate, but here's the advanced program plus the tapes for $99 a month, you know, and you get it for... No, I'm not prepared to enter into that because the purity of this process has to remain intact. And therefore, in a place like Greece, where they have nothing, in some sense, it's, it's easier. They understand that being human is the benefit that is the benefit. Yes. Yes. And they support each other with what they can. And that is not a business model. As people here keep saying to me, Richard, Michael, that's not a business model. You've got to say, how many members are you going to get and how much are you going to make? And I say, no, I'm simply not prepared to do that. Um, sure, part beautiful. Of- it's a human model. That's what. Uh, business uh, isn't yeah. first. Yeah. Humanity, yeah. I hear you saying, is yeah. first. You know, you're reminding me also of the uh, 
the purport of Buddhist thought and some of the way they frame and phrase and they speak about Richard our precious human birth and the leisure time that comes with that birth <coughs> because of our intelligence we are able to organize life in such a way that we will have time to be of service to our higher ambitions, to each other, and to the earth herself. The earth herself, which if you want to think about our attitude toward earth, it's abominable, really. And uh, it's basically a sewage dump that has lots of uh, resources that we can take, exploit, and sell to each other as though we own them, you know, just to be on the base side of it. So the, the call that you are making through your book and through your newly founded organization uh, that Michael is heading up here is uh, of such importance to help us evolve out of this really base reptilian type of interactions yeah. with each other and, you know, and get on with the story of being human. It is a story. We're writing it. We're the authors, to go back to the original ancient Greek word, and uh, do something creative and meaningful with the preciousness of our human life. And uh, so, yes, 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 and and that's yeah. why we say, come and help us do this. Come and help. You know, we. Um, if I can just say that the website is humanevolutionarychange.org, um, and these kind of conversations we're having, I'm um, uh, Michael and I are putting together the frameworks and templates so people can distinguish between those three courts and add weights. Yeah that middle court. We're, we're never going to, you know, all of us are going to have a reptilian life. The problem is it's become yes. too much of the equation. Um, exactly. And like you and I in this short time are like myself and this man on the elevator. We're kind of nodding to each other and saying, That's yes, right. let's help do this. It's not That's that right. complicated. Exactly. In fact, you know, we're we're so-called running out of time, but we're going to have you back on to develop this further. Um, Michael Shuchuk, would you please just uh, give us some information about the um, organization that you have now formed and what it's calling for and the contact information so people can find out more about it? Uh, of course, Mitchell, and um, I've... I've so very taken in uh, the conversation uh, here. Uh, so, so thank you for for having us mm-hmm. and for hosting us. Mm-hmm. It's, um, oh, sure, uh, such my honor and pleasure. As Richard said, it's a it's a compliment to the process. Um, Good. We, um, I, I first, I, as you were saying earlier, or Richard was saying earlier, uh, first met Richard when he was at the UN um, training UN staff members yes. on a way of addressing significant challenges. And I was so so taken, so very taken by the work and the the possibility, um, the promise that it held. And um, uh, so we've, we've worked um, very closely over the last four or five years and um, uh, firstly to establish the Global Center for Human Change here in New York to center the work in New York and give it, give mm-hmm. it a global, and give it a global reach uh, we also sponsored Richard for the O-1 visa that you uh, mentioned as well uh, so that he could take up risk here in the United States as a person yes. uh, that can make a significant contribution, uh, someone of exceptional character in the United States. And and then thirdly, to, to um, develop the, the, the platforms and the, and the programs around this work and make it available, make it accessible to people around the world. And um, Richard mentioned the website, uh, 
humanevolutionarychange.org. Uh, people can log on there and find more information. Um, we have a, a Facebook page as well, which is Human Evolutionary Change. Um, the, there's, a, there's a package that, that your listeners will um, will um, uh, see on the website. It is it is Evolve Yourself. It is Come Join Our Global Community. Um, mm -hmm. uh, these human moments that we're, we're speaking of and uh, uh, engage in the work of evolving ourselves. It is through evolving ourselves that we will evolve the world, that we will transform the world. It's in transforming ourselves. So your listeners will, will see this work on, on our website. They can sign up. There's a form. Uh, they can join. And, of course, at any time they can contact us as well. Um, our, uh, our email address is contact at humanevolutionarychange.org. Um, and we'd love to hear from uh, from from you about this. So um, so uh, so thank you again, Mitchell, for for having us on and for the opportunity um, to complement this process, as you say. Absolutely, Michael, and the pleasure to have you both on. It's uh, very rich. These dialogues have real energy and resonance with myself and with our listeners at a better world as you can imagine uh this is where we're coming from and these are the values we embrace and the uh thoughts the paradigm we also embrace which is begins with the inner landscape i often call inner ecology related then to outer ecology which of course is an ancient metaphysical notion anyway you know as within so without as above, so below. It's uh, in accordance with some of the most fundamental wisdom traditions. And uh, you're giving it voice, Richard and Michael, in a way that we really need can never get enough of, it seems. We never get enough of it. And we really have to turn a corner. I say to people, and I think you'll appreciate this, both of you, uh, we're either heading toward the sixth epoch where we're going to have a, a new cerebral, you know, prefrontal cortex, heart-based kind of society that we create that we'll, maybe we'll call it super sustainable, <laughs> but yeah. supercharged. Um, or we're heading toward the sixth extinction. And mm -hmm. all of the hallmarks, many of the hallmarks, are in place already noted by prominent scientists. Uh, you know, from the frogs to the eels to the birds, it's all over the place. The climate change, etc., melting of ice caps. So this work, well, to go back to Greece, I guess, where so much intelligence uh, is sourced, um, we're dealing with mother necessity, you know, which has always driven change. And uh, voila. It looks like we're here again. Richard, would you like to uh, add some uh, closing words for our audience? Mm. You know, I, I, I just actually feel a very great completion of... Uh, you know, I was saying it to another gentleman we met the other day. Sometimes we talk until the time we don't need to talk. Uh, and that's, that's the feeling I have that, um, that then we just know we know that this is the way mm. and uh, yes. I think we then have that vital conversation to have with ourselves are we going to just get on that bus again and go and do the same old thing or are we going to say no let me take what wealth I have and invest yes. it the pathway, and I think that you beautifully brought this interview to well, whatever this dialogue between us to that point. That it, it's a poignant place. I hope for everyone listening that there are many of us around who can help support that becoming process uh, in others. But it, we're not. We can't do it for others. We can't tell others. We can only keep walking along there, and one day more join and suddenly you look around and there's a whole army of people who say yeah this is right this is right Absolutely. and lastly 
You've been a real gentleman. Oh, thank you, Richard Bowell. I so appreciate it. And Michael Shuchuk, you're both beautiful men, and you're going in so the right direction. Thank you for your good work. And uh, I look forward to having you on again and carrying on this dialogue. Likewise. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye now. What a true, deep pleasure that was, a uh, comrade in arms, another brother. Just, it's so, so beautiful to share the energy, the values, the perspective. And I know that you know that we do speak about these types of things routinely, and that's the basis of what we do here at A Better World. This is, uh, this is our game. You know, and uh, I will say that uh, game again, because the more I look at, interestingly, at biology of our own and of the animal kingdom, I see that play is really at base. And it's so important. We know that neuroscientists have noted that when children play and have a lot of different kinds of games to play, their brains grow, they get smarter, they're developing their prefrontal cortex, they're developing their heart as well, where we know we have some 30 to 40,000 neuroreceptor sites, thanks to the work of Institute of Heart Math and others. And it's a kind of cultivation of coherence, if you will, that allows us to mature our human self into an integrated whole. And Michael, of course, was talking about that when he was speaking about inner transformation. And that's where, I'll say it again, the game begins. And I think that if we frame it that way, we will get more play out of it because we really are. Uh, spiritual players, we enjoy the spirit of play. And can you imagine living a life framed that way? And you could also say, why not? And we only get serious when we've stopped playing. And when you're playing in a schoolyard or you're playing on a, a ball team or something, everyone has to cooperate if you're going to get results. So the metaphor involved here is actually fabulous. It's marvelous. And it could keep us going in a way that keeps us resilient and the ball in the air, so to speak. So I just wanted to share a little of that. I, I really had a bit of an epiphany the other day. I've been speaking about play for a long time, but it hit me just how important uh, on a very deep level, play is to uh, the animal and the human spirit. And on every level, spirit, our bodies, physical bodies, and everything in between. So on that note, I hope you enjoyed playing this interview for yourselves today, this podcast. And uh, I want to just reiterate the name of Richard's book, The Last Unpolluted Place on Earth is Inside Ourselves. That's beautiful. There are certainly some very polluted places inside us, too. And I, he's been uh, vocal about that. Yet, there seems to be a place that remains witness, observer to it all. And through attending to that, that small voice within, as we say, we can really shift into our humanity, as Richard so beautifully put it, and uh, recapture it, reconnect to it, so we will not allow our brothers and sisters to go hungry, to be at war, and on. That's the real game. And I'd love to see that permeate our body politic, of course, the United Nations and other 
our world, as well as very powerfully on local levels between people, door to door, apartment to apartment, and home to home. So that's the game we're playing here at A Better World. Richard A. Bowell, B-O-W-E-L-L, and you have the website. Thank you all for listening. So appreciate it. Remember to go to our website, www.abetterworld.tv. Sign up for our weekly free newsletter. We announce our weekly radio show and our weekly community television show on every Monday evening at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time although there's nothing standard about it. And you can watch in Manhattan on television, cable television, or if you're outside of Manhattan, no problem. You can be anywhere in the world, and you can tune in through our website, abetterworld.tv. We, too, are a nonprofit 501c3. We live through your kindness, and generous donations, and it helps us invest in a better world for all, being on the air and expanding our platform. So thank you, thank you. Become part of a better world community and family. It's so lovely, and I look forward to seeing you all next.